One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiatar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, so this is part 13 of my series on the Gospel of Mark, part 4 of the Controversy Dialogues, which we will wrap up next week, and part 3 of the Food Controversies. We're going to be introducing a new theme this week, too. It's a really exciting one. Um, and that is the comparison of Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, to King David, and the comparison of Yeshua's enemies to David's enemies. It's a subtle reference to a rather brutal story, but it's definitely there. Well, it's not nearly as subtle. <laughs> it can be heavy-handed. Um, we also have another debate here um, about what I believe is another parenthetical statement meaning a phrase inserted by the narrator uh, that can sound like Yeshua said it when it's the narrator telling us something from the outside. Mark does this uh, quite a lot, uh, but because the Greek is written as an unending block with no punctuation, it's hard to locate them. You know, there are no quotation marks. There are no parentheses. There's no commas. There's no... Um, caps and lowercase it's just this block you know so you can't tell where one word ends and the next word begins i don't know how these people do it anyway hello i'm tyler don rosenquist and welcome to character in context where i teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the messiah if you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. All scripture this week, as usual, comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. There will not be a test later. Or if there is, I won't be given it, because who has time to write tests? I barely have enough time to study and get all my stuff done. First of all, the passage today rides on a familiarity with 1 Samuel uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, and 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 9 through 23, so we're going to cover that first. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? 
And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of this matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young man for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever's here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us all, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread here but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Um, note here, that's the Sabbath when it was um, remade and, and replaced. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Dog the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Excuse me. <coughs> All right. Then we get a break here. Go to the next chapter. Then answered Dog the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king summoned Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all of his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him? so that he is risen against me, to lie in wait, as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, and, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, and captain over your bodyguard, and honored in your house? Is today the first time I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, and you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood by him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. The servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Dog, who was an Edomite, You turn and strike the priests. And Dog the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and killed on that day eighty-five persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword. Both man and woman, child and infant, 
ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiatar, escaped and fled after David. <sighs> Man, this is one of the most tragic and crazy accounts in scripture, in my opinion. Now, David is preemptively fleeing from Saul after being warned by Saul's son Jonathan that it was no longer safe for him. The king means to murder him. David escapes to Nob, where the tabernacle was in those days. And um, he asks the priest for five loaves of bread for himself and his men. Now, the only thing the high priest has on hand is the lechem hapanim, the bread of the presence that only priests were permitted to eat. That's the twelve loaves that were on display in the holy place for a week before being replaced by new loaves. If this was the Sabbath, it would be the day for replacing the loaves, and so the priests would not have loaves of regular bread around in preparation for eating the old loaves. Because it was actually a commandment to eat them. So... Ahimelech, seeing that there was genuine human need and hunger, bypassed the normal regulations excuse me, and simply made sure that David and his men were ritually pure, that they had not been with women because sexual relations imparted, impart ritual impurity, even if it's with their wives. All right? Now, Remember not to mistake that which makes us ritually unclean with sin. Not the same thing. If God wanted us clean all the time, the words be fruitful and multiply become really hard to explain. And it would also be troublesome to explain why women have menstrual cycles. All right? Um... I mean, that's, that's pretty much required for be fruitful and multiply, too. Ahimelech responded to their need and gave them the holy bread, even though it was forbidden, all right? This is just one of the passages in Scripture which, which stress the value of human life over legalistically observing the law. The priest was doing what was right in showing mercy to David and his men. But Dog, Dog, the busybody, and an Edomite, no less, just like King Herod, and Herod Antipas, and Philip, and Herod Archelaus, and Herod Agrippa, all right? They saw David, and went, he saw David, and went back and tattled to insane King Saul about him. Saul responds by ordering this Edomite to slaughter the priests. I mean, you gotta, you gotta give his guards credit. They could have lost their lives, but they refused to slaughter innocent people and especially priests because they're anointed by God. And, uh, God takes care of the people who are his anointed, who are, are messing. All right. You don't have to, you know, <laughs> and they weren't messing. All right. They weren't. These people, at least they had, you know, some sense. But um, only Abiatar, the son of Ahimelech, survives out of all the priests who were serving at Nob. 
it is an incredibly sad story. I don't really know what else to say because it always wants makes me want to start crying, you know, because here's a, this Edomite slaughtering not only all the priests, but all the women and children, infants, you know, young and old. I mean, yes, it was a fulfillment of, um, a partial fulfillment of Eli's house being, um, cut off, but it wasn't, you know what? This was the wrong way to do it. Okay. Two more passages. Um, these ones from the Torah. We're going to talk about Leviticus 19.9 When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes from your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 24 Verses 19 through 21. When you reap the harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Leviticus 23, verses 24 and 25. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Okay. This ordinance, of course, you know, is, is also the foundation of much of our understanding of what's going on in the book of Ruth, right? The hungry must be allowed to, one, share in the harvest by taking what they wish from the corners of the field during harvest time, and two, to be able to avail themselves of a neighbor's produce if they are hungry, but only enough to fill their bellies right then. The two situations are different. Ruth was doing the former, and Yeshua this week is doing the latter. But the question is, the question is not whether it should be allowed, but should it be allowed on the Sabbath? Let's see. All right, starting in, uh, so we got... Verse 23 here of chapter 2. One Sabbath, he, Yeshua, was going through the grain fields. And as they, he and his disciples, made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. I have heard it taught that they were picking up sheaves left on the ground after the harvest had already happened, but this was such a time of desperate poverty that I doubt there would be anything left to pick up after the harvest. If it was, you know, it was a Sabbath, it would already be done. Everything would be gone. The gleaners were very good at what they did. They had to be in order to survive. No. It's my belief that this was before the harvest, and they were, in fact, picking the grain that had not yet been reaped. So, 
they were standing up and not bending over to gather grain in the dirt. And, and Torah allows for this. Remember, we've read this. It was not considered stealing unless you took enough for later. Uh, you were permitted to fill your stomach, but no more. This is how the poorest of the poor survived. And it was considered greed to stop them from doing it. The commandments teach us to trust in God's provision, not only for ourselves, but for others. The land was very good, and so it produced far more than was needed or it did during times of faithfulness. All right. Verse 24. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So wait. I just got finished saying this was allowed. What gives? Well, Mishnah Shabbat 7.2 tells us of 39 forbidden activities on the Sabbath to avoid accidentally working. Included among these are sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, and baking. So, what Yeshua would have been accused of here would be one, reaping, and two, threshing. In order to remove the chaff from the wheat before eating, um, you know, they had to rub the kernels of grain between their hands and blow on it, which might actually count as a third offense, winnowing. Right? So their beef with Yeshua isn't over him taking something he's not allowed to take, but over when he was taking it. But there's an ethical dilemma in interpreting the law this way. The poorest of the poor were not allowed to take, outside the actual harvest, more than they could eat right at that very moment. They couldn't come in on Friday and take enough for the Sabbath, too. That was stealing. So, if they obeyed the Pharisaic interpretation that would have forbidden them to come back, and eat a meal in their neighbor's field, then they're fasting on the Sabbath, which was also frowned upon by the Pharisees, because it's supposed to be a day of rest and joy, looking backward to the provision of creation, to their freedom from slavery, and looking forward to the messianic banquet to come. But well, think about it. What were the very poor to do if they were forbidden to gather enough on Friday? Well, they would have to go hungry on the weekly feast day. <clears throat> Surely this could not have been God's intention or a way of honoring God's abundance. None of the Pharisees were poor people. Poor people can't spend time in legal debates, and they don't have the luxury of being nitpicky. Such things are for people with both time and who do not suffer lack. So in plucking heads of grain... On the Sabbath, Yeshua is placing need over a legalistic interpretation of the law. As the Torah repeatedly commands us to care for the poor, the poor, widowed, orphan, oppressed, and foreigner, those are the weightier matters. Matters meaning that uh, other things can slide when need be to meet their needs. And I had to say Judaism agrees with this. All right? Remember, those guys in the first century were messed up called Paku and Afesh, saving lives. You, you violate commandments in order to save lives, all right? Anyway, 
verse uh, 25 and 26 here. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiatar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? Okay, so this is why we read those passages from 1 Samuel. Oh, now the Jews were hoping for another David. Duh. Aren't we all longing for, for the return of the Davidic kingship, right? For God to restore the monarchy in righteousness. And so David is the example used here to justify his decision to place Leviticus 23, verses 24 and 25, over Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. And Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 through um, 21. David, Yeshua says, was in need. He was hungry. He and his men with him needed food. They were on the run from the king. Just like Yeshua had uh, once been when Herod the Great wanted him dead, but I'm, I'm not going. I don't, I don't think he's going there right now. It's just an observation. Okay, I don't want to read anything more into this. Then it's obviously there. David went to the tabernacle in Nob, where the high priest gave him five loaves of the bread of the uh, presence, and which only priests were allowed to eat. Again, Leviticus 24.9, And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion, out of the Lord's food offering, a perpetual due. So it's pretty clear this wasn't bread that they could give to the wealthy or powerful. It couldn't be had for price. It was only for priests. It was set aside for them by God himself as an everlasting provision. David was not only not a priest, but he was also descended from a Moabite, Ruth. Um, and not only that, he was also descended from Rahab, a Canaanite. I mean, he was from the tribe of Judah not Levi, and his men go unnamed. This bread was not given to them. I mean, what if one of his uh, people was uh, Uriah the Hittite at this point, huh? We just don't know. Um, this bread was not given to them, but to the priest. And the high priest chose to take the bread that belonged to himself and his brothers and sons in order to show mercy and love to David and his men. All right. Now, you might protest, but I hope not. And God allowed them to die for it. The priest, I mean, yes, God allowed them to die. But in reading the account, both Dog and, and Saul are described as the basest sort of villainous scum. They slaughtered not only high priest, but every other priest they could find, whether they had anything to do with it or not. Saul wasn't doing God's work here. He was crazed with jealousy and paranoia that would eventually lead to his consulting with a necromancer and the death of himself and his son. No, Saul was a wicked man and Dog was a collaborator against the priest of Yahweh. Only Abiatar, named in this verse, survived, which brings us to a pickle. Don't get me wrong, I like pickles, okay? But this is one of those situations in the Bible that leaves us scratching our heads and having a bunch of theories but not knowing for sure which, if any, is the right answer. You know, isn't it great how limited we are and we just don't know anything? And 
And here, oh, I want to point out something really quick. I forgot to mention, Yeshua just flat out compared the Pharisees who are questioning him to Saul and Tug. He did, and it won't be the last time either because you're going to do it again next week. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he went there. So, anyway, back to the debate. So, here, Yeshua is recorded as saying, This was the time of Abiatar the high priest. But we read the passage, and the high priest was Abiatar's father, Ahimelech. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. What are we going to do? We'll be back in a few minutes to find out. Welcome back to A Character in Context. I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and um, this is the second half of uh, my teaching on the fourth controversy of uh, the Gospel of Mark. There are five controversy dialogues. This one is the fourth one. This is the third food-related controversy. Of course, the first controversy uh, we get at the beginning of uh, chapter two, and that is, can Yeshua forgive sins? And then the second one was, um, why are you eating with sinners? The third one was, why are you and your disciples not fasting when the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist fast? This week, we're talking about um, the purpose of the Sabbath. And is it lawful to um, relieve your hunger when you're poor on the Sabbath? And then next week, we've got the withered hand, uh, is it lawful to heal a non-life-threatening injury on the Sabbath? Of course, now we, we look at this as like, really? <laughs> but we forget how revolutionary what Yeshua was doing was at the time that he did it. We live in a post-cross world. So a lot of stuff are going, dang, this is messed up. Have some compassion. But it's real easy to say post-Yeshua all this and really hard to say it before. All right. Anyway, we've got this problem with this text. I guess it's a problem. In that Yeshua said that Abiatar was the high priest who gave, uh, or Abiatar was the, the high priest um, when he uh, got the bread from the house of God. But, well, we read that in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. That is not what happened. Um, so... Anyway, we're just, Yeshua's recorded as saying this was the time of Abiatar the high priest, okay? But we read the passage, and the high priest was obviously Abiatar's father, Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. So we have a few options, because, you know, scholars just love to find this stuff and to debate when we really can't know for sure. Seems like we, the more, uh, well, I mean, I guess it makes sense that the more, um, the less we have to go on, the more we debate. If there was more to go on, we'd debate less. So, one, Yeshua made a mistake. Two, Mark made a mistake. Three, one of the early scribes who copied this made a mistake. Four, Abiatar, being more famous as the high priest under David, is named because Although he was not high priest during the time, this incident did happen during his lifetime. 
Ahimelech was the great-grandson of Eli, the high priest whose priestly line was prophesied to um, destruction by the child prophet Samuel. Of course, Ahimelech's grandfather Phineas was a terrible excuse for a human being who even had sexual relations with women who showed up at the tent of meeting. Meeting. Meeting! Hophni, his brother, did the same thing. And they disrespected the sacrifices, and both brothers were killed by the Philistines. When the ark was captured, and uh, Eli had a heart attack and died when he heard about it. This left Ahitub as high priest, and he was succeeded by Ahimelech. Abiatar came high priest uh, under King David, but was deposed when he betrayed David's wishes by backing Adonijah instead of Solomon to be David's successor, and the new high priestly line was ordained to be through the descendants of Zadok, who was faithful to David's family. So, lots of drama here. Abiatar was a well-known name. Ahimelech only shows up in this one tragic account. He seems to have been a very good man, but he served in evil times and he paid the ultimate price for it. So, I mean, it's not like he asked to be high priest. He was born into the job, okay? It's not like he chose the time of his birth either. So, bottom line, we don't know why it was written this way. Does it change the message? No. I just felt it was important, important, important to point out the main theories. I didn't even list them all. <laughs> As I said, the less information there is, the more theories. Don't even get me going about Melchizedek or Nimrod. Oh my gosh, he's mentioned three times in scriptures. Three of those are in genealogies. And one time... He's mentioned as the founder of a few cities. He's not even mentioned in the the Tower of Babel account, but everybody puts him there. But he's not there. He's not there. And, uh, oh my gosh, Nephilim. <laughs> They're like, mentioned like almost not at all. And everyone knows all about them. So we, we come up with these as-ifs and or, or maybe-ifs and we uh, we get a little bit little bit too bought into them and we begin to believe that our, our take on it is true instead of just a theory. Hypothesis, really, because we can't even test it to, to the point where it can be a theory. Sorry, I'm getting the sciencey stuff here. Okay, anyway, Yeshua flat out admits that it was unlawful for David and his men to have the bread, but there was a greater mitigating factor, a weightier matter, and that was human need. God didn't give us laws so that we could harm one another. He uh, gave it to us in order for us to participate in the healing of the world, which in Hebrew is called tikkun olam. If your keeping of the law does more damage than good, then you are probably not keeping it correctly. We were placed on this earth to extend Eden to the ends of the earth, not to legalistically jump through hoops. When we lose sight of that and make the law into a game, we go astray into just selfishly trying to play well enough to win. But we want to have, you know, we, we have to want good for those in need. That's why Yeshua came, because we had severe needs that many of us were completely unaware of. 
We were dying and we needed life. Whenever we can give life, we must strive to do it. Even if a commandment has to be tweaked or ignored for the moment, we do not want to be like those who would refuse to rescue a drowning man just because it was the Sabbath and it would constitute too much work. We also don't want to deny sustenance to the hungry. Verse 27, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And this is just one of those gorgeous, boom, mic drop moments. It's like, you guys have no clue why the Sabbath even exists if you would deny food, you know, to the poor on this day. Why don't you think about what could have happened instead? But the Pharisees saw them picking grain and said, No, my friends, do not exert yourselves. Come and be my guest today. No, that didn't happen. They saw hungry people meeting their needs as allowed by Torah and nitpicked them. Dang, they were treating Yeshua and his five disciples at this point like they should be more concerned about the interpretation of Sabbath laws than about partaking in the very creation and freedom and prosperity that the Sabbath was meant to be a celebration of. It was given to them so they could rest from their exhausting lives, not so they could go hungry because of a technicality. The Sabbath is for man's benefit. It serves us. It takes care of our needs, not the other way around. It is not a hoop to jump through for the sake of religion, but a gift from God to be availed of and enjoyed. If poor people were unable to enjoy this day, then there was a serious problem. Now, all that being said, if you go to Israel in modern times, the poor can be seen outside of the markets on Fridays. Okay, They have a box. People doing their Sabbath preparation shopping will buy extra supplies. An extra chicken. I tell you, there's nothing more dangerous to be in this world than a chicken in Israel. <laughs> and everybody, if you, <laughs> you know it's true, right? Okay. Um, so they might buy an extra chicken, extra bread, extra wine. Uh, candles, whatever, so that no one goes hungry on the Sabbath, so that every family can celebrate. It's just this beautiful expression of tikkun olam, um, repairing the world. I mean, the Talmud tells us that the first century Jews were hateful without cause. No one makes any excuses for it or denies it. A lot of what Yeshua was protesting is no longer the case, Okay. There are now measures in place to make sure the Sabbath can be enjoyed by all, or at least in some communities, okay? I mean, I don't know every single community. I don't. But we have to make sure that we aren't doing the same thing on the Sabbath. We can never allow it to supersede human needs or to perpetuate suffering. If we do that, then we are violating the very reason for the Sabbath, and we will have replaced a worship of God with a worship of our own legal traditions and doctrines, trying to stay in our safe zone so that, you know, instead of just going out on a limb and trusting God to meet the needs of others. Now, to quote Rabbi Simeon ben Menasseh, uh, who wrote this in about 180 of the Common Era, the Sabbath is delivered over for your sake. 
but you are not delivered over for the Sabbath. In other words, what Yeshua is saying here is not outside the boundaries of Judaism. Rabbi Simeon here is saying the exact same thing. It's a very Jewish way of um, looking at the Sabbath, but these guys here had lost sight of that, and if they weren't seeing the hunger, you know, but only the transgression of their interpretation. And, you know, we, all of us, always have to be very clear about the difference between the laws and our private interpretations of them. They are most certainly not the same thing. Moving on. We have here what I believe to be a narrator's remark, and not from the mouth of Yeshua, and I will tell you why. Verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. All right, so you know by now that the Greek texts of Scripture were written like a giant block. No punctuation, no caps at the beginnings of sentences, no parentheses, no commas. I really admire the translators, I truly do. Oh, my stinking goodness, okay? Also, no chapters and verses for hundreds of more years. No one ever even formulated chapters until the 10th century, and they weren't widely used until the 13th or 14th, and verses are an even later edition. So it makes all of it very difficult to interpret. I think this last verse here, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, is actually Mark speaking to the reader or hearer. I say this, and a lot of actual scholars, of which I'm not one, I just study what the scholars write, um, they say this as well. Because this is the second time the phrase son of man is used, but in almost every other case, with the notable exception of as his trial, Yeshua only calls himself this to his inner circle and not in front of the general public. So it would be odd if he were doing it here. But for Mark to be referring to him this way, to me, makes a lot more sense. I think Yeshua had his mic drop moment back when he said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And that was that. The Son of Man comment, I believe, was for our benefit. Um, Yeshua had um, made his point, and he didn't need to go back making obscure claims to being the Son of Man at this point. Of course... The first time we saw this was back in Mark 2.10, in the phrase, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, which sounds more like narration than something that comes out of the mouth of Yeshua. To me, anyway. Doesn't really matter. Um, you know, it, do it really doesn't matter. Just something to think about as we're going through the text. That Mark makes narrative comments, and that's okay. If they are narrative comments, they're definitely good narrative comments. It's notable that Paul never refers to Yeshua as the Son of Man either, but as the Messiah. Christos um, is in Greek, means anointed. Not a pagan word. They used it in the Septuagint. I, I know some people say that. It's, no. No, 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 no. I have a blog on that. You can look it up. Son of Man seems to have um, Merely been Yeshua's self-designation when he was with his inner circle. I did a teaching on it a few months ago. Um, unlike the term, it's part of the whole Mark series. Unlike the term Messiah, which had become very bogged down with theories and expectations. Like, no one was talking about the Son of Man at this point. It was just too obscure. But Yeshua could take that opportunity and pretty much be working with a blank slate.
uh, based on very little, you know, said in, in Daniel 7. You know, and, and he could fill it with meaning, unlike the Messiah, which was just laden down with first century expectations. Oh, my gosh. But Mark, Mark is saying in this little parenthetical remark, I hate that word, and so I use it a lot, but I hate it, is fairly clear, I think, in that Yeshua is the one who sees what the real issues are and has the authority to make final determinations on what is and what is not allowed on the Sabbath, and for what reason. Last week, we talked about the parable of the bridegroom, the torn cloak and the wineskins, and we will continue with that line of thought this week. But really, you know, all the controversies involve Yeshua being bigger than black and white, cut and dried rules. He sees what's really going on, and like Solomon, makes rulings that make sense, are compassionate, and reveal truth in ways that hard and fast rules never could. So, you know, as always, Yeshua, with Yeshua, the question isn't what is legal, but instead what is right. What reveals the heart of God towards man? What heals, what delivers, what meets needs, what restores people and communities? What is merciful? And what is well-meaning oppression? Because when we look at the law without looking at people, we get oppressive. We do. We serve dry concepts instead of serving God and our neighbor. And it's so easy to do. Now, I love to tell this story. <sighs> and it's a bit irreverent, so hang in with me a little bit here. Um, when people tell me they would never work on the Sabbath under any circumstances, I tell them my own little parable. Okay, hang on to your hats. <laughs> A family is on their way to Sabbath services. They love the Sabbath. They love their fellowship. They love the worship time and the children's program. They got up, got dressed up, ate breakfast that was pre-prepared the day before, piled into the car and were singing These Are the Days of Elijah, along with Paul Wilbur on the CD player. Yeah, I like that song. Okay. Oh my goodness. What do they see along the side of the road but a family with a flat tire? It's July in Texas. And even though it's only 10 a.m., it's already getting really hot. Hmm. What to do, what to do, what to do? Ah! They pull over, roll down their windows and say, we're praying for you guys, but it's the Sabbath, so we can't help you out. God bless! <clears throat> As they drive away, the stranded family is left growling bitterly while watching a Jesus fish and the Got Yeshua bumper sticker fade into the distance. I will spare you my impersonation of the language probably being muttered under their breath. The next person to pull over is an atheist. He has a Darwin fish on the si on one side of his bumper and on the other side a sticker that says, If you want a religion, then move to Iran. He's wearing a Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster shirt. But he rolls up his sleeves and asks the family what the problem is. Being rather handy, he helps the dad change the flat and has them on the road in no time flat. 
as the family pulls in behind him on the road for a while they cannot help but notice those bumper stickers and really wonder what the heck good that first family was and what the heck good their beliefs actually were and probably wondering what their beliefs yeah what are their actual beliefs let's contrast this with what we would hopefully all agree should have happened the family on the road was struggling with the tire the husband had been injured in a recent work-related accident and was on disability the last thing they wanted was have to call for a service but he had a busted arm and his wife was doing all that she could just to keep the children from jumping out of the car with a dog it was only 10 a.m., but it was already in the high 80s and aiming to be a very long day. But then what do they hear? The first thing was music. Hmm, sounds like religious music. And the familiar sounds of tires pulling up onto the gravel in front of them. They see the bumper sticker and the gleaming fish. The dad hops out of the car removes his suit jacket, rolls up his white sleeves, and helps the dad get the tire back on. Oh, and by the way, he's wearing a bow tie, because bow ties are cool. An older girl comes up alongside the car and leans into the open window, asking about the dog and telling the kids some jokes. When the family follows the believers back onto the highway, they're thinking entirely different thoughts, and the atheist drives right by without the opportunity to help and be a better neighbor than the Sabbath keepers. <laughs> so who got to make a lifelong impact and be a savior to that family? The people looking out for themselves by not, quote-unquote, violating the Sabbath, and uh, in doing that, violated the core tenets of the Sabbath, or the people who, with gladness, violated the Sabbath for the sake of people. Now I'm going to tell you a story that always makes me cry, so I'm sorry, but I'm going to cry when I tell this story. Okay, this is a true story. This isn't my little irreverent parable. This is true. Oh my gosh, and I'm going to try it. I looked for it online. I looked for it in the news. I tried to type in, because I remember when this happened, and how profoundly it, uh, it impacted me. Except for the fact that I can't remember which disaster it was but um i think it was the indonesian tsunami so um after the indonesian tsunami in 2004 or it might have been one of the other worldwide disasters you know these things happen you know the the nuclear disaster in uh in japan uh just you know earthquakes all around the world and a team of uh Oh, here I go. See, I can't even think about it without crying. A team of Israeli medical personnel arrived to help the survivors. Now, Indonesia's a largely Muslim country. When they saw that the doctors and nurses were Jews, they asked, but isn't it the Sabbath? To which these Israelis responded, for your sake, we desecrate the Sabbath with pride. Oh, man. You know, it was like Yeshua spoke it himself through these people. Seriously. It's the same kind of thing he would say. And it is, 
he's going to get the chance to say something very similar in in certainly less harrowing circumstances when we we, we talk about the um the withered hand on the sabbath in the synagogue next week you know we don't want to be we just don't want to be that guy that guy who cares so much that he's dotting every i and crossing every t because he doesn't have any trust in the character of God to have any compassion for people who are hurting. You know, the the absolute revelation of God's character and God's love and God's desire to save is was evidenced at the cross. If we can look at the cross and um, say, this is a God who, you know doesn't want us to break the commandments for any reason whatsoever, just so that we'll be okay, but they won't. Oh my gosh, we do not know him. And he moves heaven and earth. He doesn't have us be immoral, okay? But there's a difference between being immoral and violating a commandment. Violating most of the commandments has nothing to do with hurting other people. And, uh, well, actually a lot of them do, but you know what I mean? There are, there are morality based commandments and then there are commandments. If you eat pork, you're not doing anything immoral. If you commit incest, you are, you understand what I'm saying? So there are commandments we don't set aside, but there are commandments to save someone's life or yeah, you know what? We absolutely do. And if we don't, then we only love ourselves. See you next week. (music) 